The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. Dr. Dwayne Monroe is a blogger at Computational Dynamic, an anti-crypto activist, and an AI skeptic. Uh, <laughs> in, in this a- episode of the Diet Soap podcast, we're going to discuss, we're going to discuss, not discussed, although there may be some discussed. <laughs> in this episode of Diet Soap podcast, we're going to discuss crypto coins, AI, and algorithms. Uh, Dr. Monroe, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you very much. Now, I have to actually issue a bit of a correction from the beginning. Okay. Um, m- my initials are D.R. Monroe, but I, I did not a- achieve a-, a PhD, although I'll-, I'll certainly take it if you want to give me an honorary PhD. Okay, I, I will give you an honorary uh, <laughs> PhD. Uh, uh, I will start referring to myself as Dr. Lane as well, although that... <laughs> Why not? That's what my father calls himself because he's a medical doctor. Um, okay, so Mr. Dwayne Monroe, what what is your background? Uh, uh, you know, tell tell me how you became a, a digital activist. So uh, I am a technologist, um, as as we say in the trade, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been working with technology for about twenty years, approximately. Uh, first with uh, enterprise systems, so that is to say, large scale systems for corporations. Uh, Earlier in my career, for example, I would uh, uh, participate in the design and the implementation of data centers. Um, And then also uh, other solutions within those data centers for companies within pharmaceuticals and law and material science. So my experience with technology uh, goes pretty deep. Um, And then when the cloud became the going concern or the focus of the industry. I pivoted my career to the cloud. Um, Now, I would describe myself uh, as a person who is becoming an internet polemicist on the topic of technology. And there are uh, other technologists who've gone down this path. Uh, One of the most famous ones is Yaron Lanier, uh, who a number of years ago um, wrote a, a document called Half of a Manifesto in which he criticized um, the direction of the technology industry. And then also, I believe years after that, he, he wrote a, an essay uh, about why you should get rid of your Facebook um, account. Now, so there are there is a precedent for people who actually are technologists, who understand the technology, um, but who see problems. Uh, I think that what I'm adding to this uh, milieu or this mixture of people is that my the position from which I'm approaching this is unequivocally Marxist. So I have, you know, an actual technology background. I've actually touched the machines. I know how things work when, I mean, not everything, no one can know everything, but, um, but I'm not intimidated when people start talking about highly technical topics. Um, and whereas some people see magic, what I see are computers in data centers running software. Um, and this is why my engagement with the topic of AI um, starts from a materialist uh, standpoint. Okay, so um, how did you become a Marxist? Uh, I, I'm, I'm always interested to know how people came to this uh, strange terrain called uh, um, American Marxism. I'm assuming you're American here. I am. Uh, I mean, my wife and I uh, relocated to the Netherlands a number of years ago. Um, so this is this is where we are living our life, which um, is actually. Quite good. No place is perfect, but but we do enjoy our, our life here quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the Marxism, I, I would say that um, uh, in university, so I, although I didn't get my doctorate, I, I did attend um, post uh, uh, post studies, but um, I was exposed to the concepts of Marxism through a sociology professor, actually, who taught at the University of Pennsylvania, and. Um, uh, 
it made sense to me the act when she began her uh, analysis, or rather when she began describing to us uh, some basic concepts such as historical materialism, mm -hmm. um, dialectical materialism, and the labor theory of the value. These things made sense to me, and they made sense to me because I grew up um, in a working class household, and so I was closer to seeing the the vagaries and the damages um, visited upon people's lives by by capitalist formations. Um, so it wasn't a matter of me, say, being someone in, in a position of extreme privilege who then had to kind of break into uh, an understanding. It was the person I was seeing at the ground level um, how capitalist uh, relations were damaging um, the lives of my family and the people that I knew. And also because I, I knew that the, the poverty that uh, I often saw was not the result of the failure of individuals or mm -hmm. families, even if as a consequence of, of some of the poverty, you know, you would have bad behaviors or what we would call bad behaviors. Um, I knew that it wasn't a matter of me or people who had uh, more privilege than me um, being better people, that obviously there was um, a system uh, that was uh, structuring their lives in such a way that these outcomes were occurring. But the question was, when I was much younger, uh, what is that system? And Marxism was the, the most compelling answer. Um, and, and as with any serious field of study, it's, it's, it's never done. I mean, you're always learning, you're always applying, you're always trying to, to uh, increase or rather improve your praxis. Um, and technology gives us a perfect opportunity to do this, I think, because um, here we see, you know, um, the movement of capitalism at a really high velocity, particularly since the 1990s. Um, and the movement of, of in Silicon Valley is just, just a, a marvelous case study for seeing the movement to, and the, the capacity for capitalism to to stay the same in its basic structures and yet also adapt. Mm -hmm. Well, um, were you already uh, a technologist, already uh, acquainted with computer science when you came across Marxism? I would say yes, um, because I, I my attraction to computers and computer science and computer technology goes back quite a ways. Uh, for example, my, my first uh, computer was a, um, a Sinclair ZX81, which was a kit computer that was uh, made available from a company, um, from a, a British gentleman named uh, Clive Sinclair, a pioneer in, in computer science um, from the UK. And it gave you the opportunity to do uh, programming work and it was inexpensive. I think I worked at a church you know, on, in the summer cleaning the garden or whatever I was doing as a 12 or 13 or 14 year old uh, to earn money, you know, to be able to purchase this thing. And so I, I knew from a fairly early age that I, I wanted to work in, in computation in some fashion. And I was fortunate enough uh, to be able to do it actually. But uh, I, I was the kind of person I think who, even if I became an accountant or whatever, um, um, I still would, um, even as a hobbyist, as opposed to being a profession, would have no doubt worked um, and studied uh, computers. But fortunately, it worked out in such a way that um, I was able to do it uh, professionally at scale. Well, I noticed that you've got a little bit of gray in your beard. So um, I imagine that for you, computers, when you first were getting involved with them, were <clears throat> maybe a little closer to being the, the, the obsession of, of the hobbyist. You know, you, you, you would maybe get personal computers that you had to assemble yourself or. or yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, of course, I mean, at, at that time, there already were, you know, uh, systems that were. Oh, my computers, my computer's talking to me. I wonder what I said to it that made it start talking. <laughs> it's very annoying. Like all, all these <laughs> voice responding units are extremely annoying. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but we, of course, we already had, you know, large scale systems. Um, but you're absolutely right that uh, during the era of the homebrew computing club and back when mm -hmm. Gates was pretending that he was a hobbyist and not what he actually is and so forth. Um, yeah, it, it was a, a thing that it, it was uh, something like playing D&D. It was something that, you know, a, a group of people did. Oh, no. And... Did you do that, too? <laughs> oh, yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. But, but, but you know, we, my friends and I would play D&D, and then we would go um, to party. So I had kind of the best of both worlds, like the, oh, nice. the, geek, the geek world, but also the world in which you went to house parties and 
Cool. I I didn't have the best of both worlds. I was just (laughs) stuck in the basement. But um, uh, so I'm wondering, do you think that the fact that you were acquainted with uh, computer technologies and programming and systematic thinking, maybe in that terrain, did that help you grasp uh, Marx's critique of capitalism uh, a bit more easily? Or maybe, uh, you know, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure. But what but what it did give me the opportunity to do once I actually started working after after graduating from undergrad was um, it gave me an opportunity to actually see what companies were doing, because mm-hmm. if you're involved in computation, you're involved in the nuts and bolts of a corporation. Um, and you you have an opportunity to see things that many other workers don't necessarily see because you're seeing how all the elements of the company are knitted together because computation is at the foundation of all of, of modern uh, capitalist command and control mm-hmm. and logistics. And so um, certainly, you know, if I had any doubts um, that I was on the right track, seeing how companies actually function um, uh, systematically and amongst each other uh, mm-hmm. certainly reinforced uh, what I was already thinking. So I'm going to ask you a kind of a, a newbie question because you said something earlier that uh, piqued my interest um, and will also expose me to, to really be uh, out of my depth. But you said that when the cloud became uh, where a lot of uh, computer programming or, you know, the technology was going, you pivoted to the cloud. Mm. <clears throat> what is the cloud as opposed to <laughs> just the Internet? <laughs> So there is a joke when the cloud era really got underway in the uh, mid 2000s, I'd say Mm -hmm. Um, a a joke went around amongst techies, which is there is no cloud. It's just someone else's computer. Um, And what techies meant by that was that all the things that we have been building um, within the data centers of a particular company um, Mm -hmm. were now being offloaded to um, companies such as Amazon and then a little bit later, Microsoft and Google, uh, Alibaba and uh, Oracle, IBM, so forth, other companies. Cloud computing is defined by the National Institutes of Science and Technology as a methodology of providing computational services over the internet, yes. Um, However, there are certain differences between, say, a simple website and a cloud. Mm -hmm. What a cloud is, is a, a service um, methodology that provides a unified API, by which I mean there is a, a unified fabric, a computational fabric, um, that provides services uh, such as database, compute, and storage um, that can um, be elastic. It can scale to, to meet your need. Um, and it's provided as a utility as opposed to uh, something that you have to build in a bespoke fashion. So for example, if you use Amazon Web Services, if you're a company and you use Amazon Web Services, uh, rather than having to um, you know, build infrastructure yourself or purchase uh, you know, servers from Dell and other companies and rent real estate you know, to, to rack and stack, as we used to say, these servers to provide the computational power that you need for your company, now you are actually renting as a utility the, the computational power the database, which of course is key to to many things that we do, um, and the storage. Um, And there's a reason why Amazon, when it began offering cloud service to to the public, because it was internal for a while, um, it started with a service called uh, S3, which is a simple storage service, I believe, because they realized quite early on that making storage as a service, as a utility that you could simply use would be a, a foundation that would sort of hook people in. Because one of the problems that we had um, in the pre-cloud era was having to purchase more and more disks, more and more storage. Could, um, could you say that again? Because you kind of froze up for a second. I heard, could hear you, but when Amazon started offering their services, say that, mm-hmm. start from there if you could. Could you kind of froze? Yeah, yeah no, no problem. Um, they started with well, what they called S3, which stands for Simple Storage Service. Mm. Because they realized that the foundation of much of what we do is storage. Um, in fact, um, today, one of the most important things for what we call AI and, and, and machine learning, which is a subcategory, is the ability to store vast amounts of data, the big data that we often hear about. What does that really mean in material terms? Well, it means the ability to store massive amounts, gigabytes, terabytes, petabytes of data. 
And so Amazon realized in, in the early days that if they made storage available foundationally, um, that that would be very attractive to, to organizations, which indeed it, it did turn out to be. And then they built higher, higher order services on top of that that allow you to build, to write code and run websites and do all sorts of things um, that we can do today. Um, but to, to answer your question, um, I guess to put a capper on it, yeah, the cloud is a way of consuming computational power, database power, and storage capacity as a service, the way that we consume electricity and water. So it's like renting um, mainframe computers, basically, to do that are programmed to provide you with storage and, and services. Like at is, Google, Do Google Docs is part of the cloud. Yes, right. that, that is a category which is um, which is called uh, software as a service because there are subcategories. There's mm. infrastructure as a service, software as a service, platform as a service. All these things come under the the umbrella of um, of, of what's um, known as a marketing term of cloud. Mm -hmm. And I um I used to write on Word, mm -hmm. and now I write on Google Docs. Yes, <clears throat> and. Uh, I've noticed that Word, this is just off to the side, Word is unwieldy. It's it's terrible. It's a really terrible piece of software. It's a very big um, code base. Yeah, it's a very big, because Microsoft has to maintain backwards compatibility with a lot of stuff. Um, whereas Google was able to proceed, you know, from the presumably somewhat fresher code base, although, you know, everything bloats eventually, um, which is one of the points that uh, Yaron Lanier wrote about years ago in his half a manifesto, which is that hardware... Um, the, the power of hardware inc increases by leaps and bounds, but software remains um, a bottleneck because it, it has all sorts of problems. But yeah, um, uh, and people you know, have different views about this. People, the thing about software is that it trains you to work within its limitations. Um, and then it's marketed to us as if it has remarkable capabilities. But what's really happening is whatever works with your mind. So if Google Docs works for you, because mm -hmm. you've you sort of become accustomed to it, then it seems better to you. Uh, but there are people who use Word, and you know they're just whizzing through it because um, they've trained themselves to to master its idiosyncrasies. Mm -hmm. I um <clears throat> I'm going to stay on this subject for a moment longer, although <laughs> I, I feel as though uh, you know. I'm just. No, this I, is I not supposed to be a tech support session. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair, fair, fair. It's fine. It's fine. But but, but um, like I edit videos, you know, and yeah. um, I have something called Premiere that I yeah. could use, mm -hmm. but I find it to be challenging, uh, and I use it rarely and sparingly because for things that I can't do on the on what I actually use to edit with, which is just a screen capture program called Camtasia, which mm -hmm. is the first thing that I ever started really uh, consistently editing video on. Mm -hmm. And it's really not a good editing program. It mm -hmm. has severely limited, but I can use it quickly. I don't, it does like if I try to use Premiere to edit a video, it will take mm -hmm. me twice as long, if not three times as long to do the same thing that I can do in Camtasia. So um, I, I and like, I'm misusing the software. I wonder how common this it's is. It's very common. It's, it's very common because uh, software has feature sets, right? You know, I think, yeah. I, think I, I could be wrong about this. Um, it's been a while since I've looked this sort of thing up, but uh, I think Word, for example, has like hundreds, maybe even thousands of, of like features and sub features. And of yeah. course it's impossible. You know, for anyone to really master master this, um, and, and so, but then you know, a, a lot of it is that there there's a whole field um, for user um, experience. There's user interface designers, there are user experience designers, and there's a reason for this because people have to actually work through these quirks, and that's what beta testing is supposed to be about. You know, is to work this thing out. Remember back years ago when people talked about Apple, like you know, giving iPhones to, I don't know, all their employees, like new models of iPhones, so they could work out all the bugs. Apparently mm -hmm. that program isn't working too well because <laughs> iPhones have all sorts of problems. But um, yeah. but that's the theory is that, you know, hey, we'll, we'll work out all the bugs, the user experience issues by actually, you know, hammering the thing out. But um, lots of things, lots of uh, areas of the practice, so to speak, um, are, are kind of falling, are falling down. Yeah, I mean, this is, this kind of is getting to, the real topic of our mm -hmm. conversation, because what um, I'm what I'm realizing is that uh, that you like 
the, the technology is training us and it, it, as it changes, it presents challenges to us. So like, I just got a new phone mm-hmm. a few months ago yeah. or a month or so ago. And I find that things are going wrong with my new phone that never went wrong with the, the other phone, but it's the not, phone, uh, yeah. yeah, the same. It's a pixel, right? It's a pretty good phone. Um, mm-hmm. Google phone. Yeah. Um, but the new model, uh, I have to pause apps every once in a while to get them to stop being in a particular, like they freeze up on me and things. I know I just don't know how to use them right. I just, well, it's me. Uh, don't be so certain. Um, and it's interesting that you say it's you. And I think it's common for people to do this because the assumption is that, well, the technology is advanced um, and foolproof, or if not foolproof, at least reliable. Therefore, if there are issues, it must be me. But it isn't always you. Um, sometimes things things just suck. In fact, they <laughs> suck more, more often than people really um, are willing to acknowledge. Certainly, the industry is not going to, you know, Google's not going to come out and say, here's our new Pixel. By the way, it, it might kind of suck. Um, and I'm not saying, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm sure that there's Google partisans out there who are like, no, it doesn't suck at all, blah, blah, blah. And I, I don't really care about those kinds of debates anymore. I, I used to like 10, 15 years ago, and I'm like, whatever. But um, um, uh, go on Twitter and have the argument. But <laughs> it's important for people to know that the technology is, is not, it, it's not a done deal. We, we are not living in, 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 in a Star Trek world. Um, you know, these, these things are very provisional. They're very, um, in some ways, cobbled together. And, and also, um, we're kind of decades in, into this now. And some companies, some organizations are beginning to lose focus um, because it takes money and time and effort, you know, to, 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 to maintain quality control. And I, I think that we're starting to see, this is something I'm working on as a bit of a, a pet thesis, but I think we're starting to see signs that many of these organizations that were valorized in the earlier part of, of the tech boom, in addition to us realizing that they are damaging in a variety of ways, such as meta, Facebook, whatever, um, also, I think that technologically, in terms of the quality of their builds and so forth, I think things are starting to cracks are, are, are starting to, starting to show because the scale at which they're operating um, requires a level of uh, capital investment and focus that I think is difficult to maintain for decade after decade, particularly for a capitalist enterprise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this gets us to the promises that we're being that are being made by technology i mean mm-hmm. that the baseline promise is that when apple or google puts out a new phone that it is mm-hmm. in some way appreciably better more advanced more powerful uh ha- has m- new needed features like mm-hmm. for me a big thing with the this phone was it had a really good camera right? sure and and it, so uh, I, but strangely enough, I have not tested that very mm. much because uh, the COVID mostly. It's like I don't go out to film things as much. Sure. But, um, sure. but what you're telling me is that, in fact, the tech, the 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 companies, by and large, they're motivated for a variety of reasons to only kind of create the impression of advancement. Which, there which is advancement. I mean, there, there. I mean, in terms of microprocessors and and uh, the hardware capabilities, they do tend to improve. Although I think we're starting to come up against the limits of what what has been known as Moore's law, and those limits mm-hmm. have to do with um, the incredibly small scale at which they're operating, and they're starting to run into problems having to do with you know uh, an, an atom's width worth of material, and mm-hmm. uh, they're starting to get into quantum um, areas and now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but that, re- but software remains uh, an issue. For example, you could have the most remarkable piece of hardware ever, but um, it's it's just a lump of stuff. If if the actual software that has to make it go is still kludgy, um, and mm. I, I think we're seeing evidence that um, hardware manufacturer continues to um, to move forward um, or at least increase capabilities. This is why you have more and more pixels on your camera. But you still have to have software to actually make it work. And and there's no magic there. Software is a matter of creating instruction sets that can optimize the usage of the hardware. And this is where things often uh, um, fall down. Um, this is also, the, of course, the case with uh, with AI as well, or what we call AI. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's ultimately just software. 
um, that's marketed as having abilities that it doesn't actually have. Um, and I and I think that once Silicon Valley got involved in in that area, um, that's when we started to see this muddling of of uh, promise with actual capabilities and and. Um, yeah, so when Steve Jobs would get on on a stage and start talking about you know how he was you know the iPhone was changing the world, well, yes, obviously there were some changes and some significant changes happened the way we interact in the world, but but not the kind of changes that he meant, and and also the, it, it's a machine, you know, it, it's it's not uh, a magic wand. So AI, <clears throat> we, you described to me what the cloud actually is mm-hmm. and how it came to be. Mm-hmm. Now we live in a world where we're supposedly encountering AIs all the time. Mm-hmm. They're not what I would have anticipated an AI would be mm-hmm. like. You know, like uh, uh, back in the day um, when I first encountered an AI, uh, it was Eliza, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it was it would give me this simu- simulate the give me the impression of having a conversation, not too well. But no, this well wasn't enough. this wasn't the this wasn't the original Eliza created by Joseph Wiesenbaum. I'm guessing it was a a, a port of, of of that code. Yeah, yeah. Else, I, I talked I talked to Eliza online in the nineties. Yeah. You know, right? Yeah. Um, but I thought of it as being basically the same program as the original, yeah, Eliza. which it was more or less. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, and then there were variations on those kinds of AIs that you could go talk mm-hmm. to online there's one called alice and others yeah. and um and those were all aimed at passing at the turing test i think yes. they were all just aimed at convincing you that there was a personality on the other side of the screen and yes. maybe maybe you go to a website and you wouldn't know if you were being put in touch with a person or an ai um the, the, mm-hmm. that was at least a kind of a promise that you could go and talk to maybe a person maybe mm-hmm. an ai um but now uh, AIs, they sometimes talk to you, but they don't mm-hmm. try to Im- convince you they're people anymore. Um, and they seem to be doing a lot of other things that have nothing to do with simulating a human intelligence. Uh, so what is an AI today? What, what are we being told an AI is? So let, let's, let's start at a little bit of the foundation, which is that the term artificial intelligence itself was coined at a conference at Dartmouth in 1956, um, mm-hmm. at a, a conference of computer scientists. And it was to, uh, presented as an aspirational term to define what the research program was. And in earlier decades, from the 50s through the 60s, the 70s and 80s and 90s, um, the idea was that by creating um, kind of a, a library computer with the ability to manipulate or rather perform symbolic logic and uh, that you would have, you would achieve intelligence. And this is called in the field, good old fashioned AI or GoFi. These programs or rather these research programs all reached dead ends. Um, And in fiction, you see representations of this idea in HAL 9000, for example. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, the very name kind of contains the idea, heuristic algorithmic logic Um, or um, uh, I think a, a um, underappreciated film from the early '70s, *Colossus: The Forbidden Project*. Um, so there are the fictional depiction of computers represented the vision of of actual um, artificial general intelligence, the ability of a machine to interact and understand the world as it was understood up until the mid 2000s. But each of these research programs, as I said, reached dead ends, and then. Um, AI winters, uh, that is to say, moments when government um, and university funding would dry up occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 2000s, um, mathematical patterns or mathematical concepts and, and probabilistic ideas that had been crafted in earlier decades, um, but which lacked the computational c- capacity to be realized, mm-hmm. were realized. Um, and so what you had was a combination of data lots of data, thanks to the internet. Mm-hmm. You had faster processors, game processors, uh, for example, which were not built for this purpose, but you know they're designed to do very demanding workloads. And um, the use of statistical methods. So what we call AI today is actually pattern matching. Whether it's Alexa, um, a list, uh, you know, 
receiving audio input from you and then responding with canned responses, whether it's Siri, whether it's Google search, um, all of these things, whether it's uh, AlphaGo, uh, whether it's GPT-3, all these things are either um, lesser or greater examples of pattern matching. And that is being sold to us, however, by corporations. If we pay attention closely, now there's examples like Musk and so forth, but um, you know who, who's who's not worth listening to. But there and there, are, but there are more serious people who are who are presenting the idea that this technology will eventually lead to um, actual AGI, actual artificial general intelligence. Mm -hmm. But what we've created are pointillistic. Uh, as Gary Marcus says, cul-de-sacs. So for example, we thought that when Deep Blue defeated Kasparov, that that was evidence of intelligence. But what we actually discovered was that playing chess is a bounded um, space of activity. It's very complicated. There's lots of different moves and, and it involves a lot of brain power, but it is not uh, something that cannot be um, mathematized. It's not something that, ca that cannot be um, um, turned into a pattern that, that can then be enacted via an instruction set on, on, mm -hmm. on a computer. And the same thing was true for Go. And the same thing was true for the probabilistic stringing together of text, mm -hmm. um, you know, to, to, to autocomplete. So what we call AI is actually pattern matching. Mm -hmm. And that's different from, again, just to clarify from something like HAL 9000 or HAL 2000, because... <clears throat> that those earlier versions of AI were um, software programs that were programmed to use logic um, and to try to think. The, That's right. And in, in the case of Hal, I mean, uh, the, the fictional character of Hal right. embodies what the idea was at that time, which was that if, if, if it, we could build a system that had at its disposal all the knowledge of the world, a library, so to speak, and the ability to to use symbolic logic, that the result would somehow, presto changer, um, and I'm being a little bit unkind because obviously, you know, some serious thought went into this, but the, the, the concept was that this would produce something akin to what we do, or maybe exactly what we do, or superior to what we do, because, you know, how, of course, was supposed to be faster and smarter and so forth. And all fictional computers are, are depicted as being super intelligences. In fact, Philosopher Nick Bostrom, as you probably know, um, released a book several years ago, Superintelligence, that presents the idea that this is the the path that we're we're walking towards. Um, he's very light on technical details because I, I don't know what he actually understands about actually existing computers. But um, but this idea is uh, is is abroad in the land. In fact, if you were to Google artificial intelligence, what you will get are images of glowing brains, robots, you know, uh, doing something like this, or these are the images that are, uh, are brought. And there's a reason for this, which is that uh, the tech industry is promoting the idea that what they are building is actually intelligent. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they have to, uh, because, you know, number one, it, it's a moneymaker, but also they're trying to reshape our understanding of what their capabilities are away from, I would say, a materialist understanding of computation to a belief that it's like magic. And this is having real world consequences. For example, recidivism, um, um, machine learning um, uh, programs, what Facebook does and so forth. All of these are examples of the consequence of insisting that these algorithmic systems have the ability to make decisions um, when of course they don't, um, you know, they're, they're simply looking at, at, at data sets and mm -hmm. going and looking for the patterns that they have been trained or programmed to look for, and then, you know, producing the results um, accordingly. So they use a, a statistical analysis of pattern and pattern recognition exactly to produce a result. Whereas the old fashioned AI would be posed a problem like a, what's, what's the name of this song? Look at the data sets and then, use logic to try to the, the, theoretically to deduce what the correct answer that was, was the idea yeah that that there would be you know like you say well you you would you would pose you know if, if fictionally you would pose a, a problem um you know i'm i'm wet um what 
you know, I, I, there's a lake nearby, I'm wet, what possibly happened? And the idea, the hope was that you could create a, a system that would then be able to logically infer, well, perhaps you were in the lake, as right. opposed to go through, you know, a, a massive data set um, of pictures of you and the lake and so forth, and then kind of make a, a crude correlation. Um, but not even really a correlation, because correlation sort of uh, implies uh, thinking. And and what we're and really what we're just talking about are our, our training sets um, built upon massive amounts of data and the the statistical uh, analysis um, the methods that we all learned in high school and college linear regression and so forth all these things are are, are coming into play I mean uh, and there are, there are newer forms of uh, of of math as well but but it, it's all based upon the you know the, the same trunk or coming from the same trunk mm -hmm. um, and so. The fact that we don't have thinking machines is consequential because it it means that well for one thing uh, if you pose a, a a problem to the to an AI that um, isn't uh, just a uh, one that's already been solved say that that isn't in the data set it's not going to be able to think uh, uh, for up a solution. It won't be able to be innovative or, and, and or this is, creative. And, and, and this is exactly why self-driving cars, self-driving autonomous vehicles remain a challenge because the most successful examples of that, such as Waymo, or what mm -hmm. Waymo has done, I think in Phoenix involve a combination of mapping, uh, sensor arrays on the vehicle and a bounded space. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, so you've you've created a training situation or a, a, a programmatic situation that allows the machine to navigate a space um, that it can that it's navigated in a simulated environment. And as long as everything stays, you know, exactly the same, it's fine. But the moment you say, well, now, you know, Waymo car, take me to, I don't know, drive me from Phoenix to Los Angeles. Uh, it, it, it's impossible. Um, and in fact, behind the scenes with Waymo, there's this army of people in a, a data center observing everything that happens because they, they realize that, you know, the, the, the platform does not have the ability to make any decisions. It's, it's simply running through um, a, a program, essentially. So that's so but in a looks, way. But, but, it, but it looks very impressive. And, and this is and Doug, I'll tell you that the reason why I started doing this is because I was watching an episode, uh, and by this I mean, you know, um, becoming kind of a tech, lefty tech polemicist mm -hmm. on the internet, um, is I was watching an episode of um, This Is Revolution, and um, Pascal Robert commented on the potential for self-driving trucks perhaps having an impact upon the political economy of logistics, and maybe an impact upon truckers as workers, and I believe one of the guests was Angela Walker and she said, and she's a trucker as I recall. And she said, absolutely not. Like that's just not, it's not possible because of all the environments that I operate in, there's no way a computer could do that. And I don't know if she's familiar with the research, perhaps she is, but she's absolutely right. That, um, that a self-driving truck is just completely beyond our capabilities, but not only beyond our capabilities now, but beyond our, our conceivable capabilities because we have no idea of how to do that. And, th and we'd have to have a paradigm. Shift. Precisely. I mean, yeah. Melanie, Melanie Mitchell, who's a computer scientist has said it would take, we are in innumerable number of Nobel prizes away from being able to, to even begin to have this conversation. Um, so we, we don't even know how to begin. And, and that's, that's. Well, I, I mean, the other way to go about it would be to have more uh, control over actual space. Yeah. In other words, and, to and put, it's interesting to put you it, say that. Yeah, know, to put it to differently, it's like what you are really doing with these self-driving cars is creating a kind of mass transit where there are yes. tracks and everyone's got to stay on a track. Right. right. And and wouldn't it be simpler to simply say, let's it, all use a train? Or a yeah, bus? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, you spent billions and yeah. you put sensors everywhere, but you just could have gotten on the damn bus. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, what's interesting about this, what you just said is that uh, many of the companies who are, who are in this space realizing that their, their, their highfalutin claims of only a few years ago, which by the way, have an impact on their stock valuation and all of these things, um, that the way to, to solve the problem of the fact that they cannot build self-driving vehicles, 
uh, is to just put censors on, on everybody. And I think I, maybe Biden or or maybe it was uh, Harris or or um, uh, Buttigieg. I, I think might even have uh, spoken about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. You know that there would be censors, you know, to protect people from um, from these these uh, these terrible machine these terrible non-thinking systems. You know, say, well, if it's <laughs> if, if if there's a censor on you, then it won't hit you. It's like so you would spend trillions on. <laughs> These stupid sensors instead right. of just saying, why don't you just have this gate that goes down <laughs> over the tracks <laughs> or to keep people from the tracks when the, the when the train's coming you know it's a t- <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous but it, but it does show you how ridiculous and also dangerous this space is um mm. and one of the things that i i i, I strive to do and I, on twitter and elsewhere um and is help people to understand that um, when we are analyzing this space, we need to ask the right questions. So, for example, if if uh, if a Musk says, I'm, "I'm going to get us the Mars and build a Mars colony," you'll have a number of people write like all sorts of elaborate, you know, essays and analyses about you know Musk's plans, you know, to build a, a Mars colony and what that means, and you know, for um, the labor theory of value or whatever. And, but the real question to ask is, well, no, that's not possible. He can't do it. (laughs) So why don't you like save your energy and focus on what the actual harm is? Um, And this is my my approach to what we call AI is the actual harm is not super intelligence or people being replaced by automation. Like, you know, um, the real harm is, are these primitive systems being placed into decision-making flows Um, and, and then obscuring culpability from governments and corporations because they can say, well, the AI, you know, did it um, as opposed to the, the company or the people who decided to put this terrible system in place. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a real life example. Here in the Netherlands, there was a, a benefits termination system that was put in place a number of years ago, which I believe was uh, fielded by IBM. And um, the system was uh, marketed as and assumed to be flawless. And as a consequence of this system, uh, many people were flagged as being, uh, um, you know, getting benefits they that they were not entitled to, and um, there was no appeal, and there were no people in the loop, which is unusual for the Netherlands because typically people are always in the loop. Um, and there were many terrible consequences. There were people who lost their children. Some, I think there were some suicides. It was the, the current government um, or the previous government uh, was under, of course, a lot of scrutiny because of this. It's a great, it's a great scandal. And at the heart of that scandal was the assumption, probably starting as marketing propaganda, that this system will alleviate you of the burden of having to go sift through thousands or millions of applications for benefits. Um, we can algorithmically determine whether or not people are eligible. Uh, and, um, and then you can just relax because the system is flawless. And these are the actual kinds of harms that are happening to people um, mm. uh, today. And, and that's why I get frustrated when people on the left, um, when they analyze the tech space, that they, they look at these things that either are not happening or cannot happen, um, which are sexy, though. You know, like, what will be the impact of these exotic, non-existent technologies on people's lives, rather than looking at the actual harm um, that's happening today? And there are people doing this, but... Um, but it's 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 mostly te- technologists who are concerned, and I I, mm-hmm. I I think that it's a rich field of study for Marxists to actually analyze the Silicon Valley and its activities, um, but one in which it was informed by an understanding of of what they're actually doing. In other words, we're supposed to be materialists, right? So we should look at the actual material situation um, and then be- build our analysis from that. What do you make of? Um... Zuckerberg's meta move. I wrote uh, wrote about this in my blog, and um, it is, of course, nonsense. Um, but it does bear watching because it's not achievable as described. And this is a phrase I use often: um, that whenever you're presented with a, a technical uh, concept, you should ask mm-hmm. yourself, uh, "Who benefits? Um, is it achievable as described?" And if it is, it is it, and if it is achievable at all, what would be required to make it achievable? In the case of Metaverse, um, putting aside the fact that he's just borrowing a term from, you know, the, I'm sure you know as a science fiction guy, 
the Neil Stevenson um, mm-hmm. uh, novel uh, Snow Crash, mm-hmm. which I, I read when it was first released. So mm-hmm. when I heard about this, I'm like, Jesus, really? Um, <laughs> dude, you know, it's it's it wasn't a good thing. But of course, you're not a good person, so it, it's I, I understand. <laughs> I understand right. the the combination of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is not technically possible as described. And what we do have, of course, is you know what was already done in Second Life and 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 what was done through the the Oculus Rift um, and the VR environments that are created for that. However, I think that what they're going to do is try to to find ways of monetizing this, um, and they will present it as if it's. Um, and we're already seeing this; like people are describing what is essentially the same stuff but they're rebranding it as metaverse. Um, and there's a few minor modifications where, you know, you've seen the comments. Just to be clear, the, what are the claims he's making we can achieve? That we can create a world, mm-hmm. right, that people can live within to yeah. a large extent yeah. uh, using what, an Oculus? Uh, Essentially. I mean, yeah, because, of course, I mean, there's there's some sort of patent um, or, or maybe uh, augmented reality glasses or something like that. As yeah. Well. So, you know, they have the Ray-Ban stories glasses and they also have the Oculus because they purchased that company a while ago, as we mm-hmm. know. So some combination of those technologies, but some hapt- a combination of haptics, that is to say gloves, mm-hmm. um, um, goggles or glasses of some sort. Um, in fact, in, in the blog post, I, I what I did was I actually took a look at their job listings. Because if you want to understand what a tech company is, is up to, one of the mm-hmm. first things you should do is look at their job listings um, and look at the categories of people that they're looking for. And so uh, Meta is looking for, you know, haptics engineers and server administrators and psychologists and so forth. This is the, the, the job listings that are being posted. So, yeah, the, the idea is that it would be a totally immersive environment, obviously not as immersive as uh, Star Trek's uh, holodeck. Although it's interesting that in the the introductory video that um, Zuckerberg uh, presented, he basically is in kind of a holodeck like environment, which of course mm-hmm. is impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, but even at the modest level that they're talking about, it's not possible because for very practical material reasons. Right now, I think the uh, Oculus VR environment is serving out maybe a few hundreds of thousands, maybe a few million people, perhaps at best. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about, I mean, uh, billions of people or, or hundreds of millions more mm. people mm. who might potentially, at least ideally, they would like to have on this system. This requires an increase in computational capacity by orders of magnitude. In fact, in Intel recently, an executive from Intel recently released a paper saying exactly that, that we do not have the computational capacity to, to achieve even a modest version of, of what uh, Zuckerberg presented. Now, of course, you know, Intel has skin in the game because they're hoping to sell hardware, but that doesn't, but that doesn't make the assessment any less true. And um, so I, uh, my prediction is that eventually that uh, the metaverse will probably end up being mostly an internal Facebook thing um, that they, are, they force their employees to use. And then some companies will, will use it for conferencing and things like that. And they'll try to market it as a way to, you know, to do cool stuff, but it'll probably, it'll probably fall flat eventually. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you a question that's very uh, self-indulgent, but uh, in my novel, the, the, there's an actual AI Mm -hmm. and the AI decides is given the task of saving humanity from Mm -hmm. itself. The AI predicts that if things keep going the way they, you know, are going, Trump will start a nuclear war Mm -hmm. with Russia. So, We've got to intervene. So the the solution is to break with capitalism by creating an augmented reality, uh, which everyone would live in, mm-hmm. and everything they did in that augmented reality would be in, revolve around video games. Mm-hmm. And the video game then would also be a form of production. So this is Bash Bash, right? This is Bash Bash right behind me, yeah. And the video games would be a way that you would play the video game, but you'd also be creating computer chips and Soylent and helping to produce more porta potties because you know in the real world, yeah. In the real world, right? Right. And um 
and this becomes the way people live. In the, wait, wait, in, wait, soil it? Porter potties? These are the only jokes. <laughs> you create, well, you're playing a game and you, create, you know, right. and maybe you're helping to keep the electricity running to right. for the for the sleeping chambers, wherever they're like. I, didn't, I don't right. know if I even wrote about that. Um, oh, and yeah, everything's very, you know, uh, uh, sex is a very strange thing in the new world. But I um, imagine, yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, uh, but uh, because you don't really see each other exactly, not in an unmediated way. But anyway, does any of that sound remotely plausible to you, or is that completely off the spectrum of the possible? Because, because well, one, the AI itself, right, couldn't exist. As yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, so the uh, a system that could make decisions and reach conclusions. I mean, you know, you've you've basically just spelled out the the plot of uh, Colossus. Um, which, if you've seen it, I guess you do, because I, I, th- I think you'd enjoy it. It's from 1972, I think it was. I have not seen uh, it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's a quite interesting Cold War-era movie, because in, in that movie, and I think War Games probably borrowed its idea from it to some extent as well, but in that movie, um, the United States and the Soviet Union create uh, parallel supercomputer systems that uh, c- control their nuclear arsenals. And uh, Colossus is the American one, and Guardian is the Soviet one. And um, these two systems independently decide that, um, hey, you know what? We were built to prevent humanity from nuking itself, but maybe the problem is that humanity is in charge. So let's use the fact that we now control all these nukes <laughs> to force humanity to, you know, to to be better. Um, and so the, you know, so they 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 craft, um, you know, a, a kind of a, a co-dominium of the Earth based upon these two supercomputing um, systems. But yes, the problem is that um, in reality, um, there's no way to get a system to make, um, you know, to assess our situation. We could create a program. We could create some kind of jangled together system that would then present some kind of answer. And people do this with GPT-3, which is the the language model um, um, uh, platform. Um, people do this today with GPT-3. They'll ask it questions like, you know, will humanity destroy itself? They'll type in a question, and it'll it'll gather text from from its from its um, its language model, and then assemble some kind of answer. You could do that, but of course, there's no thinking. It's simply assembling text. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I know that it would be it would be nice if if we could build such a system, but the first step would be for us to understand ourselves. Like we we couldn't just stumble into building um, a parallel intelligence without understanding ourselves. And we are a very long way from even understanding ourselves. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I recognize that every day, just about myself. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I feel like one of the major topics that we were supposed to discuss was um, cryptocurrencies. And we haven't even come yes. close to that yet. It was about true. 52 minutes in. Here's what I'm going to do. And this is devious of me. I want to, I want to take a break, uh, give you an, another link in about 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Tell me if you have time. Do you have, can you do this? Is this okay? Yeah, it's, uh, I have like another 30 minutes approximately. Yeah. Okay, great. So a 30 minute session. Um, uh, and, and we'll talk about cryptocurrency and I'll I'll put that up for patrons only. Uh, uh, and, and you can let me have it about, uh, (laughs) cryptocurrency. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I'm going to stop the recording here.